0: This is Southern Discomfort. The South is poised once again to play a pivotal role in this year's presidential election. From the end of the Civil War, right up until today, North Carolina has served as a battleground state between the majority of people that at various points have pushed for transformational change, and a powerful minority bent on perpetuating divisions along racial, gender, and class lines through state-sanctioned and vigilante violence, or exclusion, dressed up as political moderation. Despite being lauded as a leader of the progressive so-called New South, North Carolina led the way in constructing Jim Crow segregation following Reconstruction resisted the integration of public schools after the Supreme Court's 1954 decision striking down separate but equal, and boasted more Ku Klux Klan members at the height of the civil rights movement during the 1960s than all the other Southern states combined. More recently, following the Republican takeover of the state legislature in 2010, special interest groups, like the American Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC, targeted the Tar Heel State to serve as a laboratory for new and increasingly sophisticated ways of using policy to preserve power in the hands of the few through gerrymandering and by restricting people, primarily people of color, from exercising their right to vote. Opportunity came knocking in 2013 when the United States Supreme Court struck down a key provision of the Voting Rights Act. Section five of the Voting Rights Act required Southern states to obtain preclearance before they could make any changes to election law. Within hours of the decision, hours, the Republican lawmakers in North Carolina passed a sweeping voting reform bill called House Bill 589. Just as the Voting Rights Act of 1965 became the cornerstone of a successful strategy designed to ensure African American access to the ballot box, opponents of House Bill 589 argued that it paved the way for conservative legislators to suppress African American electoral participation. Resistance came swiftly. Nearly overnight, a broad coalition led primarily by the state chapter of the NAACP, under the guidance of Reverend William Barber, descended upon the North Carolina General Assembly to protest the radical policies of the Republican-controlled legislature that the protesters feared would turn back the clock on 50 years of progress towards economic, gender, and social equality.
1: This leadership wants to make our state a place of deeper stratification and inequality. It's not accidental or naive. It's premeditated and it's planned. They are following the playbook of Alex, the playbook of Civitas, the playbook of John Locke, the playbook of the Koch brothers. But they didn't know that we were going to get in the game and stop the play.
0: The demonstrators returned every Monday that summer. The Moral Monday movement, as it came to be known, garnered national attention and resulted in more than 1,000 people being arrested for civil disobedience. Unfortunately, the Southern predicament has become the scourge of the nation. Variations of the voter suppression tactics used in North Carolina have been deployed throughout the country, and they have been on full display during the coronavirus pandemic. Formerly incarcerated people in Florida were recently denied access to the ballot box because of outstanding fines. The closure of polling sites in Milwaukee during the April primary election forced Black and Latinx voters to wait in long lines to vote, at grave risk, to their health. On the national level, recent cuts to the United States Postal Service could play a major role in the outcome of the 2020 presidential election when an estimated 80 million Americans are expected to vote by mail. Joining me now to examine these recent attacks on our democracy through the lens of the long struggle for voting rights in North Carolina are Robert Korstad and James Leludis. Korstad is a professor emeritus of public policy at Duke University, and Leludis is a professor of history at UNC Chapel Hill. They just wrote a new book called Fragile Democracy, the struggle of a race and voting rights in North Carolina. What were your goals for writing Fragile Democracy? And what are you hoping that people take away from reading about this history?
1: what we've attempted to do in in fragile democracy is uh, to tell the story of race and voting rights uh, from the end of the civil war from emancipation all the way up to the up to the present day and you know we've tried to look at the place uh, of race in the uh, sort of health of our of our democracy i think one of the things you um, see when you look at this long story is that the struggle over race and the franchise is played out through cycles on one hand of emancipatory politics and on the other hand, uh, conservative retrenchment. And, and we see that happening again and again over the last 150 years or so. And I think the central thing to understand is that when race has been used uh, as an instrument of exclusion for political, from political life, the result has been a society in which vast numbers of, of Americans, uh, black and white alike, are, are denied the, the elements of um, meaningful freedom. You know, things like a good job, um, quality education, good health, a good home. Um, so in, in that sense, um, th- these questions of race and access uh, to the ballot box are uh, just absolutely central to the, the health of our
2: society broadly and the health of our democracy. We wrote uh, Fragile Democracy as a way of bringing North Carolinians into this uh, longer story. To have people who are out registering people to vote, trying to uh, mobilize in the midst of this pandemic, to have them see themselves as as part of a long process, like the people uh, who participated in Freedom Summer in Mississippi in 1964 or the participants in the Constitutional Convention of 1868 in North Carolina. You know, it's not just an isolated moment today, but uh, people can really see the work they're doing as part of a continuation of efforts to establish a uh, democratic society in North Carolina.
0: Your book makes it very clear that North Carolina was not just an ancillary player in promoting white supremacy. How did successive attempts to maintain white supremacy in the state translate into something you call the Carolina way? I think if you, you
1: you look at the history of race and voting rights in North Carolina, I think you can argue that historically, North Carolina has been the purplest of purple states, that this state has been, uh, at various points in its, its history, remarkably progressive. And those are at the, the, the moments when a, a, a multiracial alliance, uh, black and white, um, in our own time, uh, Hispanic and Native American, you know, have managed to hold on to political power and have vastly I- expanded uh, the, the role of the state and, and the investment the state makes in, in public welfare. And on you know, the flip side of that, we've also seen uh, sweeping periods of, of political retrenchment of the sort that we're living in now. And the difference between those two outcomes. Is remarkably small. I mean, if you you see this again and again throughout the history, it takes on, the moving only a very small number of voters to make a profound difference. And race uh, and racism have have been central um, to you know that that project of, of swaying and moving
2: those voters from one side of the ledger to the other. North Carolina has also, I think, been a leader in this uh, whole process of. Of what we're calling emancipatory politics, both uh, in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, and the fusion movement in the late 19th century, night uh, in the 1960s, the important role of uh, Greensboro and the Sidians in the in the civil rights movement, the central role that North Carolina played in the Southern War on Poverty, uh, and then more recently with the Moral Monday movement, North Carolina is really. Uh, been a leader in the South and pushing it back against so many of the conservative uh, uh, initiatives that have come in the the wake of uh, President Obama's election. So the Carolina way, which uh, we talk about in the book, was, uh, I think, a moment uh, in this larger history of white supremacy that was characterized by what one civil rights activist in North Carol- in Winston-Salem, North Carolina phrased it this way, if you beat the white man at one trick, he will try another. And what that meant was that at every moment uh, that blacks uh, initiated participation in the electoral process, North Carolina legislatures uh, would come up with a a new rule, a new uh, election law, a new uh, tactic to try to marginalize or block uh, black empowerment. In the 1950s, they didn't do it uh, with violence, which is what they'd done in the 1870s and the uh, late 1890s. They did it in more subtle ways, which in some ways people saw as a, as a form of kind of moderation. But underneath it was, uh, you know, a very pernicious form of blocking the participation in the democratic process of African-Americans.
0: Reverend William Barber drew inspiration from the fusion movement, which saw black Republicans joining hands with populist white farmers to expand democracy in North Carolina, to inform the Moral Monday movement, and now the revived Poor People's Campaign. Can you talk about the fusion movement and then the white supremacist backlash that culminated in the Wilmington coup of 1898?
1: You could argue that if um, biracial, multiracial politics had any Uh, chance of success in the late 19th century, from the end of the Civil War to 1900, it was probably in North Carolina. I mean, during Reconstruction, a larger percentage of white voters than any other Southern state crossed the race line and made common cause with newly emancipated, um, newly entitled uh, to citizenship, um, former slaves. And in that effort to, to build a more Democratic North Carolina, of course, you know we know was beaten back by Klan violence in the late 1860s and early 1870s. But black men could still vote through the 1870s and through the 1880s and into the 1890s, and so that that potential for another biracial alliance was all there, Uh, and it um, became a reality again in the mid 1890s, largely caused by the economic shock of the the panic of uh, 1893, really a depression in the early 90s. And again, large numbers of whites uh, left the Democratic Party, um, joined the new populist movement and made common cause with blacks and their white allies in the Republican Party. And so that's what we know as fusion. And the elections of 1894 and 1896 uh, that alliance gained control not only of the state legislature, but also of the governor's office. And again, North Carolina was different here. Fusion movements um, emerged elsewhere in the South, but only in North Carolina did they manage to take control of both of those uh, branches of government. And what they did in terms of new state investments um, in social welfare, changes to election law, they created what historians have long described as one of the, the most democratic, uh, with a little d, politics in, in society uh, in the late 19th century South. And again, that was met with a violent, a vicious white supremacy campaign in, in which white Democrats with a capital D uh, turned to fraud and, and violence to defeat that alliance once for all. And once they had returned to power, uh, they disenfranchised black men with an amendment to the state constitution that required a literacy test in order to register to vote. It was a way of making sure that having beaten this alliance back uh, a second time, that it would not reemerge a third time in the 20th century.
0: Right. And those attacks on democracy culminated in the bloody Wilmington Coup of 1898
1: an armed, uh, well-organized group of white insurgents uh, rose, uh, rose up uh, to displace a biracial fusion government in, in, Wilson, in Wilmington. They marauded through Black neighborhoods. They they, they killed mercilessly. Uh, they ran the government out of office and in fact banished hundreds uh, of, of leading Black citizens. It was the only municipal coup d'etat in American history.
0: Walk me through the political gains that were made during the fusion period when whites and blacks crossed racial and class lines to work together to demand change.
1: Bold new investments in in the public welfare. For example, uh, the fusion legislature in the late 1890s equalized per capita spending on black and white school children. I mean, that's something that often shocks people. Um, They don't imagine that that could have happened in the late 19th century. Uh, They passed in 1895, one of the most progressive election laws uh, in the South. And again, some of the provisions are really quite surprising to people. In 1895, that law required that employers give workers time off to vote. It required campaign finance reporting. It accommodated um, illiterate voters, about a third of whites uh, and um, about two-thirds of of blacks, by allowing parties to print their ballots on color-coded paper with graphic and visual um, identifiers so that illiterate voters couldn't be defrauded. I mean, this was an, an extraordinary experiment in meaningful, substantive democracy.
0: As you mentioned earlier, the fusion era ended with the Wilmington coup, and the Democratic Party takeover in 1900, which you write in the book, cleared the way for a new order characterized by one-party government, racial segregation, cheap labor, and grinding poverty. Talk about the brutal caste system that was implemented by North Carolinians against blacks, and how it also affected poor whites in the state as well.
2: Right in the you know in the wake of the white supremacy campaign and disfranchisement at the turn of the century, white elites in North Carolina and this was true uh, elsewhere in the South and the timing was a little different in each state, but established a regime of what's called Jim Crow. And I think one of the important things to remember about Jim Crow is it's not simply a story of race. Just as you know, slavery wasn't just a matter of race; it was a matter of, of economics, of creating a system of power and plunder, to use Tanasi Coates' term, both in the in the antebellum period, but but particularly in the period after 1900. You know, so they create a caste system we know as as segregation. There are laws that prohibit uh, African Americans from you know riding on streetcars with whites, from being buried in cemeteries. We've seen all the traditional uh, signs of of water fountains, et cetera, et cetera. But it was uh, really the the creation of a racial division of labor that I think characterized Jim Crow most profoundly. And that was a system in which, for the most part, African Americans were banished to the countryside uh, where they Worked in agriculture as sharecroppers and tenant farmers, uh, or in the in the small towns of the state where large numbers of African American women work as worked as domestic workers. It uh, isolated whites uh, for the most part in the textile industry was which was almost an entirely white uh, industry. But black earnings, which were kept really at the subsistence level uh, in agriculture and other economic pursuits, uh, really set the floor for wages for everyone and kept white wages uh, pulled down. And Jim Crow was also a system that really enforced a fear in white workers that if they violated the tenets of Jim Crow and segregation, whether by uh, making common cause with African Americans or by joining labor unions or protesting their own low wages, uh, they they could uh, lose their racial privilege, which gave them just a, a small uh, foot up in this in this regime of Jim Crow. And what that did was keep the wages of, of poor whites and of virtually all African Americans very low. And it meant that meant that. Uh, North Carolina was a chronically poor state with large uh, numbers of people uh, living in poverty uh, well into the 20th century.
0: Talk about the individuals like Carolina Times editor Lewis E. Austin, who resisted the status quo and agitated for expanding democracy for people of color.
1: White said made it very clear by the end of the 19th century Um, that they were not going to abide by the terms of of Black citizenship and Black freedom that had been established at the end of the Civil War, uh, particularly with the 14th Amendment, um, guarantee of citizenship, and the 15th Amendment, the guarantee of the right to vote. Um, But as overwhelming as the political defeat, the victory of white supremacy was uh, at the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th. The remarkable thing is that uh, Black North Carolinians—they uh, didn't concede, um, but instead, during the sort of worst times of Jim Crow, uh, maintained the, the, the struggle uh, for for equal citizenship and 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 for civil rights. And Lewis Alston, who was editor of the Carolina Times, the state's leading black newspaper, is a great example of that. And his story also points to uh, the political realignment that begins to happen as early as the 1930s and, and culminates in the 1960s, when Democrats of the late 20th century look like Republicans of the late 19th, and Republicans of our time look more like the conservative Democrats of the late 19th century. Uh, But Austin, in the the 1930s, urged Black voters uh, to go out to attempt to pass the literacy test and to vote, uh, register to vote as Democrats. It's the beginning of an abandonment of the party of Lincoln and the Republican Party, and the logic Um, Austin said was that uh, you you needed to carry the fight to where the power was. And in North Carolina, in the American South, um, before the 1960s, the power is squarely within uh, the Democratic Party. And so what's fascinating here is that uh, Austin kind kind of carries the revolution right to the belly of the beast.
0: Can you compare Austin's crusade with that of Local 22? an interracial labor union in Winston-Salem, led primarily by black women at the height of Jim Crow segregation? Having won an historic labor election in 1943, the workers began to focus their efforts in demanding greater democracy, not just on the shop floor, but out in the community as well. In fact, Local 22 spearheaded a major voter registration drive that resulted in the election of the first black candidate to win a municipal election in the South since the Wilmington coup in 1898. As one worker famously said, it was just like being reconstructed.
2: Austin's efforts began in the in the early 1930s and really spread around the state with the d- development of, of state organizations. And one of the most remarkable uh, moments, I think, in this uh, kind of early expansion, this early voting rights uh, movement in North Carolina was the a unionization of uh, mostly African-American tobacco workers at R.J. Reynolds' company in in Winston-Salem. Workers uh, about 8,000 strong organized a a local of the food and tobacco workers, which is CIO Union, in 1943. And after they had uh, signed a collective bargaining agreement with the company, began to look to the political sphere as a way of consolidating that power. And There's a great quote from Robert Black, who is the the rank-and-file leader of Local 22, looking back, thinking about uh, what was at stake there. And he said, if you're going to defeat these people, uh, he explained, not only do you do it across the negotiating table in the R.J. Reynolds building, but you go to City Hall. You elect people down there that's going to be favorable and sympathetic and represent the best interests of the working class. And, you know, it was really remarkable in Winston-Salem, the union started sponsoring citizenship classes, literacy classes. They start going in mass to register uh, workers to vote. Uh, They participate in the 1944 and 1946 uh, congressional uh, elections and were probably the key votes in 1946. Uh, And in 1947, they build a a biracial coalition with white unionists in Winston-Salem and some progressive whites to help elect Reverend Kenneth Williams to the city council. He was the first African-American to win uh, an election uh, against a white opponent in the 20th century South. So again, uh, this battle to gain access to the ballot to participate in this democracy was really uh, taking place uh, on many different fronts in this in this period.
0: If you want to look at the roots of our modern political discourse, including the way that conservatives have used identity politics to divide Americans along racial and class lines, I think you have to look to North Carolina Senator Jesse Helms. Can you talk about Helms's use of race but also his skill with using the media to maintain his grip on power for 30 years.
1: Jesse Helms had a, a very long history uh, of using the race card um, to, to win a political victory. You know, he, he first emerged as an influential figure in 1950 um, in the Democratic primary contest uh, for nomination for, for U.S. senator. And that uh, primary pitted UNC President Frank Porter Graham against Willis Smith, a Raleigh attorney, former president of the American Bar Association. And that race at the end of the day uh, pivoted on the issue uh, of race. The first primary was very close. Graham won by a plurality, but not a majority. And so Willis Smith had the option of calling for a runoff. Now, he was inclined not to do that. Uh, until a young radio reporter named Jesse Helms um, began organizing supporters in Raleigh to go to Willis Smith's front yard and to encourage him to call for a runoff election, a runoff primary, and Willis Smith did that. And in that final campaign, um, Willis Smith's forces, and Helms is a central player in this, um, made race the central issue. Um, There are infamous uh, broadsides that many people are familiar with, urging white North Carolina voters uh, to wake up, um, the broadside said, before it's too late. Frank Porter Graham favors mingling of the races. One of the bitterest and most consequential elections in North Carolina history. Willis Smith defeats Graham and goes off to Washington, and he takes his young protege, Jesse Helms, Uh, with him. Well, fast forward to 1972, um, which is really the turning point moment for the reemergence, the rebirth of two-party politics in North Carolina, Uh, and Helms wins election uh, to the Senate, um, a seat he would hold for 30 years.
0: Can you discuss Helms' 1990 campaign against Harvey Gantt, the first black Democrat to run for U.S. Senate? It is such a good example of how Helms could reliably play the, quote, race card to ensure victory.
1: That um, campaign in 1990 against Harvey Gantt, it it too goes in the ledger book as one of the most contentious um, campaigns in North Carolina history. And again, race was racial appeals. Uh, They became the deciding factor. The race was very, very close uh, until uh, just days before election day. The Helms' campaign came up with a television commercial uh, that focused on a pair of white hands, a wedding band, crumpling crumpling a job rejection letter. And the voiceover says, you wanted that job. You deserve that job. But they had to to give give it to a minority
0: because of a racial quota.
2: Is that really fair? Harvey Gantt says it is. Gantt supports Ted Kennedy's racial quota law that makes the color of your skin more important than your qualifications. You'll vote on this issue next Tuesday. For racial quotas, Harvey Gantt. Against racial quotas, Jesse Helms.
1: And that ad um, really played a a major role in turning enough white voters uh, to defeat Harvey Gantt.
2: It's really important here to understand that these uh, racial appeals You know, really began going national, starting in the nineteen sixty, particularly during the nineteen sixty four campaign with Goldwater, but more particularly with the Nixon campaign in sixty eight. You know, running using uh, uh, the dog whistle of uh, law and order uh, as a way to try to appeal to the anxieties of white voters. You know, it's what's what's interesting is to. See on a national level uh, what you can see uh, very clearly in this history in North Carolina, going back to the to the end of the Civil War, this uh, this effort to use uh, race and racism and kind of uh, racial anxiety to uh, to appeal to white voters. It uh, looks like a bad movie uh, being rerun over and over again.
0: During Reconstruction. White supremacists knew they couldn't take back power by legitimate means, so they turned to vigilante violence and the KKK. Later, during the 1980s, staunch conservatives like Senator Jesse Helms still had to fall back on racism in order to clinch their elections. Many things are different today, but something that is similar is that the policy priorities that conservatives are pushing remain less popular than progressive ones, like Medicare for all and debt-free college. President Trump admitted as much when he said that Republicans wouldn't win elections without voter suppression measures that ensure their preservation. Do you think that this is driving a lot of the voter suppression tactics that we are seeing in North Carolina and around the country?
1: I think that's absolutely central, um, Jonathan. I mean, one of the most important things to recognize is that, you know, if we fast forward a little bit and think about House Bill 589, an omnibus um, election law reform bill passed in 2013 and ultimately rejected by the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, that piece of legislation restricting access to the ballot box was not crafted in a vacuum, right? But the the very same legislature that wrote that legislation also turned down Medicaid funding that would have expanded health care to nearly 500,000 North Carolinians. It's the same legislature that made unemployment benefits in North Carolina some of the skimpiest in, in the nation. It's the legislature that did away with North Carolina's in earned income tax credit, which economists across the political spectrum agree is one of the most effective means of lifting people out of poverty. It's the same legislature. Uh, that dramatically reduced on a per capita basis uh, investment in public education
2: in this state. You know, what's important uh, always in, in understanding this history is that the confluence of voter suppression uh, with the efforts to minimize the role that government plays in the everyday lives of people you know, as we look back over the course of, of the, the period from the end of the Civil War uh, to the present, you know, what we've seen is really two very uh, different visions of society fighting it out with each other. Uh, one that's uh, been led by conservatives that believes in minimal government, uh, limited taxation, and, and quite frankly, limited participation by citizens in the in the exercise of, of democracy. And another vision that sees uh, government as a vehicle for creating opportunity for everyone to expand uh, education, health care, social welfare benefits, to create an, a society that uh, benefits the whole and not just uh, individuals. That's really the subtext of, of, of these struggles. Uh, that have been going on over this period of time. Uh, the racial dimension gets the headlines, but I think the, the real story in some ways is, uh, is what's going on underneath and these, uh, these tensions between these two very different understandings of what, uh, of what government is all about.
0: Yeah, I think that was really highlighted in the Moral Monday movement. Can you talk about how the movement was able to put a spotlight on harmful legislation coming out of the General Assembly, like HB 589?
2: I think one of the most uh, fascinating things about the response to uh, House Bill 589 uh, and these efforts to suppress the vote in North Carolina was the, the remarkable uh, resistance to that uh, led by NAACP and its president, Reverend uh, William Barber. Uh, the Moral Monday movement that started uh, really just in the immediate aftermath of the legislation that's, that's coming out of uh, the General Assembly was remarkable in, in the way in which it tried to bring uh, people from lots of different walks of life in North Carolina together. So uh, Reverend Barber was very, self, very self-consciously uh, looked to the fusion movement of the late 19th century to other uh, multiracial, multiethnic, cross-class alliances that had existed in North Carolina. And uh, using uh, tactics of the Civil Rights Movement, nonviolent civil disobedience, uh, with with mass arrests, uh, sitting in, in, in the General Assembly, it was a uh, remarkable effort, ultimately quite successful, I think, when put together with the legal challenges that were initiated by the NAACP to have many of the uh, election laws uh, declared unconstitutional. So, you know, in the last uh, decade, uh, while the conservatives made uh, one of their best efforts uh, yet to try to... Uh, limit the participation of North Carolina citizens in the democratic process, people took it upon themselves to resist that uh, in a way that uh, has been quite successful.
0: Judges have rolled back the most egregious redistricting maps, as well as voter suppression legislation, like House Bill 589. As welcome as these victories are to advocates hoping to expand the franchise, how confident are you too that conservative forces will regroup and come up with a new strategy to restrict voting access. And if not here on the state level, then maybe on the national level.
1: I would not um, assume for a moment um, that uh, defeat of those efforts uh, means in any regard that the battle uh, has been won. Um, I, I think... Again, the history of this state uh, suggests that it has always been a purple state, often been a bruised state. Um, The fight has been intense. And I think the message of this history is that um, securing our our democracy, um, securing a government that is committed to advancing the welfare of us all, uh, requires uh, unrelenting vigilance. And it also requires that we attend to the duties and responsibilities of, of citizenship, that we speak up and have our voices heard and that we turn out to the polls uh, and, and exercise that, uh, that right to vote. You know, what's going on here in North Carolina is, is very much uh, an American story. This is the, the nation in microcosm. Um, and I think when you zoom out, uh, that you could argue that the S- Supreme Court of the United States has done as much work as anyone else um, in dismantling the kinds of democratic progress that's been made since the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, Citizens United opened the door wide uh, to unaccountable um, private money, uh, in shaping campaigns. And of course, um, Shelby v. Holder gutted the Voting Rights Act by, you know, removing section five, which had required preclearance of any changes to, um, to election law in covered jurisdictions, and including um, most of of North Carolina. I mean, what's interesting with House Bill five eighty nine is that Republicans in the legislature had been working for some time on ideas to restrict uh, access to the ballot box, and the Supreme Court handed them a, an extraordinary gift in Shelby v. Holder, just cleared the path entirely, and so. The history is pretty clear about the stakes, Um, when alliances of that sort have been broken in one manner or another, and and historically that's often uh, been accomplished by the opposition playing the race card, um, the consequences are are pretty dire. And a lot rests on our capacity to to do the organizing and, and finding ways to promote the kind of uh, state and the kind of nation
0: we aspire to live in. Robert Korstad and James Lelutis are the authors of Fragile Democracy, The Struggle Over Race and Voting Rights in North Carolina. Music for Southern Discomfort was recorded by Blue Dot Sessions, I'm Jonathan Michaels.